Hey everybody, it is Nick Bradley here and welcome to this week's episode of Scale Up. So new year, everyone's out there trying to grow and scale their business. You've got goals, you've got intentions. I thought I'd kick things off by going deep into the world of marketing, but not just any sort of marketing. What can we learn from the world of politics and what can we learn from the world of corporate? Quite often, very cutthroat environments to cut your teeth and get good at acquiring clients and building brands and that sort of thing. So I am delighted to have on the show today, Philip Stutz. He is the best-selling author of The Undefeated Marketing System. As I said, he's come from a pretty interesting world, the world of politics and the world of corporate marketing. He's had 25 years experience on the campaign trail, literally spending billions of dollars in political ad spend. He's been involved, get this, 1,407, 1,407 election victories, three presidential victories in the US. He's had 58 national awards and he's been in the media, on the media, 372 times and nationally. What I loved about it was the game, the, the marketing game behind how politicians get elected. So what we're going to get in today, and I love this conversation because you know I, I kind of want to know how the world of politics works. When someone gets elected, all that money that is spent, all that influence, you know, if you watch any of the US elections and everyone's running around, you know, to every state on their plane and all this sort of stuff, how does that all work? And how is it so effective in terms of influencing decisions and influencing votes? There's this five-step system that every political campaign pretty much uses in the United States to win. So today, we're going to get into all that and more with Philip. And more importantly, we're going to talk about how the use of data can be brought into any business so that you can get super granular in terms of who you're targeting, what you're trying to achieve. And I've said this for some time, and I truly believe this. The more that you can kind of get into that level of detail, the more you can make sense of it to create insights, the more successful you are going to be. So strap into your seats, everybody. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Philip Stutz. Hi, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here and welcome to the show. I am delighted to have someone with me today who has done so many things. We were just talking before pressing the record button. We could go in 50 angles. I don't know, right? But I have with me today, Mr. Philip Stutz. Now, I want to kind of go into the stuff you've done in the political sphere and talk about presidential campaigns. But I also want to touch on your marketing system because scale-up business all that sort of stuff. I think you're going to have some gems to to bring to the party there. So listen, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate it, Nick. I love what you're putting out there. Uh, I I like the podcast a lot. It's in in my subscribe buttons. And um, uh, thanks. Thank you for having me on, man. We're going to have a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Well, let, let's let's kick off with with the whole. I mean, you, you sort of referenced as the cutthroat world of political and corporate marketing. Yeah, and my background's yeah. private equity, which is about as ferocious as you can get in terms of punch ups and egos and status and all that. Probably not as mm. much as political presidential campaigns. Maybe a lot of similarities, though. I'm sure. So when you were six, right, and you said, "I'm going to go up and be this this amazing political corporate marketer." Of course, I'm joking. I, I actually think I was 22. There you go. Well, that, the, there's the question. The question is, how does someone, how does someone get into yeah. this? Yeah. Well, I, I attribute it back to when I was about six. So what happened is um, 
I'm one of the first generations of uh, ADD kids, attention deficit disorder. There wasn't even attention hyperactivity deficit order, whatever it was. There's no ADHD. It was just ADD. Uh, this was in the late 80s. And when I was about 16, 17 years old, I was given uh, Ritalin, which I don't even know if that's still prescribed for ADD or anything anymore, but it was a drug to help you concentrate and focus. Um, ultimately, just like a lot of entrepreneurs, I have a big ADD problem. And, you know, some entrepreneurs go, go the wrong way with their ADD and some go the right way, right? <laughs> ADD entrepreneurs love to chase shiny objects, right? Um, but... I knew ultimately, even at 16, 17 years old, I had to do things that I was excited about. Otherwise, my attention would never be focused to, to work on it. So after college, you know, people were like, oh, you should go interview for sell, sell products for a trucking company. And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds, that sounds fun. <laughs> I said, I want to throw up on my mouth. Like, you know, like th these people were like, no, no, you can make. Now, this is back in like 1996, right? When I graduated college, but they're like, oh, no, 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 you can make uh you know, you can make like $35,000 right out of college, which is a lot of money back then. Right. And instead I took a job for $18,000, half of that, uh, which, you know, if you calculate the cost, I, I I've done this before. It was like 400 bucks a week or something like that. Maybe even less. I, it was something absurd. Right. And maybe it was like 500 bucks every two weeks. I, I don't know, but think about that. Think of the hours, $18,000 a year, but that's, you know, ultimately I had to do what I was passionate about. And I only really cared about two things, which were a, a certain kind of sport uh, called college yep. football, which maybe your audience listens to watches. Maybe they don't. And I then I see some stuff this, on the back here. As we're talking, I can see some stuff on the back of your wall. There, yeah. yeah it looks a, a bit like college football. And yeah. There's a, there's a big <laughs> helmet back there, but, um, but, and, uh, but here's the deal. I, the other was politics. I just got fascinated, but I wasn't fascinated to run for office. God, I would never do something like that. What loser moron would ever do that? We, we'll get into that. that that's that's going to be a question later. Um, keep going. I kid, but what I loved about it was the game, the, the marketing game behind how politicians get elected. And so I just said, you know, I want to figure this out. And, um, you know, figured out a way to get an $18,000 a year job figured actually my first job paid $900 in the first three months so $300 a month. And then I got, you know, a huge bonus to $18,000 a year. Um, Wait, what was and, the industry? So we talked about, it wasn't the trucking job for like 35 no, grand. It was, it was half a that. presidential campaign. It was, uh, oh, so that was the first gig. The first gig was a presidential oh. campaign in 1996 for a guy named Bob Dole, who's running against Bill Clinton. Right. Yeah. Did not win. One of I, listen, I've been on eight presidential campaigns. Um, five of them did not win three of them did. So, you know, you can say, oh, he, he lost five. Well, I mean, sometimes these presidential campaigns have like 10, you're running against 10 other candidates, right? Um, not just, it's not a mano a mano race or whatever, but so, uh, but I've, you know, been a part of a lot of them through the years. And what was it about the political thing that really kind of interests you? Uh, it, you work 24 seven, uh, you believed in the candidate. You you, you were fighting right. for something you believe would um, improve the world, improve the country, improve your state that you live in in the United States, um, and you know that you were fighting for something that was bigger than money. You were fighting. Was that for the feeling you had more. when you were that age, though? Was that the thinking, or was it was it more just the fact yeah. that it was just an interesting game? Back to your point beforehand, this seems yeah, like an no, no. I mean, I think that that's what caught my attention. Right. The attention of it was uh, getting to know people that could be president one day 
getting to know that, that and helping them succeed so they could run for the highest office, not to get them in power, but because you believed in what they were fighting for. And that ultimately was a pretty motivating factor. And the other thing is I just, you know, I was single, you know, and, uh, up until 32 years old and I worked 24 seven, seven days a week. I mean, I went literally for three years um, in my earlier career, I had 21 days off in three years total, including wow. weekends. Um, and I loved it. I would never trade it for a minute. I had all the time in the world. What else am I going to do? I wanted to go fight and learn and try to, uh, try to win. And, and I think ultimately it comes down to this, Nick, it's either win or die. And for someone that is an ADD kid, when you have one or the other, there's no like, a, well, what are our quarterly numbers? And can there's we no get second place, is there? And like, that doesn't do anything for me. Knowing that everything is on the line is, does something for, for me. It juices me up. And that's why, you know, like, um, you know, I've done 350 national TV appearances, um, whether it be ESPN, CNN, uh, MSNBC, Fox News, Fox Business. I've done them all over 350 in the last uh, nine years. Well, you say one thing wrong in front of a million people on live TV, you're in, you're in deep doo-doo, right? And so I don't get an ego kick by going on the shows. I get a kick because, you know, either I perform and I deliver or I'm never going to be asked back or it could ruin my, it could literally wow. take down my entire company if I say the wrong thing. So you've got the fine line. There's no second place in this stuff, right? You know. It's yeah, and I'm not scared. I mean, I have a lot of fear in other areas of my life, but this is one of them. I just don't. I go for it every time, which makes me, you know, um, the kind of entrepreneur I want to be. Where did that? Where did that come from? Do you think? Did that come from imprinting from parents, friends, uh, a mentor you had around when you were younger that kind of shaped some of this? Yeah, thing? I think I was in an environment where everybody played it safe 24/7, and I okay. just decided to be the opposite of that. Yeah, you know, I can relate to that. Yeah, well, I don't know if you play golf. I play golf, and I go for broke every shot. Like I, people are like, just play it safe. You can have a nice score. And I'm like, why would I want to do that? I want to uh, shoot the lowest score humanly possible. I'm worse and, than that, dude. I, you know, I, I basically go out there saying, no, no, no. I'm gonna hit it down the middle, right? Yeah. I'm not gonna go for the green in one or so I'm gonna hit it down the middle. I'm gonna play the whole round like that. Yeah. And then after after the first, you know, tee off, that's it. <laughs> bam, bam, bam. No, totally me. And also because that first shot's great, right? The first shot's like, I'm thinking, wow, here we go. <laughs> right. But I have no fear. It'd be number, it'd be on the on hole 18. And I played a horrible round and they go, just lay up here. And I go, no way. Why would I lay up? I played terrible. Might as well go for it. So I always go for it. And, and, and you know, you talk about sort of, you know, the theme of this show. I mean, for me, uh, scaling up, I am, I bootstrapped all my businesses. I have no debt. I have no outside investors. And uh, I've bootstrapped everything I've done. And that's because I bet on me. And, I, and that's, you know, I, that's just my philosophy. It doesn't mean I've done it all right. I've play, made plenty of mistakes. But I definitely have, you know, my, I'm a, I have a bootstrap mentality uh, so far in my career. I, probably changing over the next 10 years. But right now, that's, that's how I've built the first. Uh, so that, so that belief then, let's, let's just go into that. That belief or that self-belief. Because I'm, I just, I like to, I like to go relatively deep just to understand okay. how people kind of get to where they get to. It helps everyone else listening too, right? Sure. So, so where did that come from? I mean, the ADD thing I get because I think I was there too. I mean, I grew up similar timing to you, and I don't think I had, I don't think I was appreciative of it, but yeah. I can see it looking back. But belief for me, for example, I had a grandfather who who did some crazy stuff, like, and he was always showing up for me and supporting me, and I was seeing the stuff he was doing, and then that pattern of behavior 
uh, impacted the things that I've done. So I'm just curious if you had something similar or whether it was something you had to create yourself. Um, I was, you know, yeah. I mean, I know what it is. Are you, are you ready to go deep? Yeah, do it. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Um, I've done a lot of uh, psychedelics in the last few years for therapeutic reasons. Or I don't know if you're familiar with psychedelics for therapeutic <laughs> reasons, but I've done MDMA and I've done LSD and I'm probably going to do ayahuasca at some point soon. And mm-hmm. what I really realized that probably the one factor that has uh, overtaken my life from a very early age all the way until about a year ago was rejection mm-hmm. um, and how rejected I feel felt my entire life. Um, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of that, but v- from a very early age up until just about a year ago, until I had the realization through uh, my work, my therapy with psychedelics. And I realized how powerful a force it was. And not only that, when you have been rejected pretty much your whole life, you end up rejecting other people. You sort of repeat the pattern, like the abused, the abused kid becomes the abuser as an adult. And so I treated people really poorly and I, I struggled on a lot of different levels because of this whole uh, pattern of rejection throughout my life. But the pattern of rejection just made me resilient in a good way. I mean, there's, there's silver linings to all of the trauma we have. And I have a ton of trauma, just like everybody else. I'm no different. But part of my trauma was this ability to be, I mean, was the factor that I was rejected on a lot of different fronts by a lot of different things in my entire life from, you know, five or maybe even birth. I just don't remember up until I'm 47 now, until I was about 46. And I also use that as a superpower. There is no failure that puts me down. Failure is feedback and failure also makes me more resilient and says, oh, I'm not accepting this. I don't resign anything. I don't have problems that sit out in the ether and I just say, well, those are problems. I solve problems because I have this utter fear of being rejected. Um, And because I've been rejected so much in my life for so many different things that there's a, there's a callousness there. And I can overcome those. And, you know, that's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have, have a lot of trauma and a lot of pain. And part of the reason they're, they're entrepreneurs is to, over, is to either overcompensate or overcome. Part of me probably was an entrepreneur to overcompensate for a long time. And now I'm definitely in a better place where I feel like I'm in the process of overcoming. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and, and and you know what? It's funny. It's funny. This happens more often than not. I end up having conversations with people who have patterns of stories which are similar to mine, and I was I, I went through the same thing in many ways. If I went through the story, you know, bore you to death. But there were lots of things where I had to kind of overcome rejection as well. How I I did two things actually after going through that for various reasons. One Tell is me. I got really gritty, like yeah. I run running ultra marathons, hundred sure. mile races, like just to run away a lot from yeah. stuff. Correct. And the other thing. As I, as I went from being an entrepreneur early on to going to the corporate world, and I was an arsehole, man. Honestly, I, I would have ripped up trees to get that promotion or to win. Right. And I don't like necessarily looking back at some of the behaviors that I demonstrated back mm-hmm. then. But I tell you what, they, they took me to a place now where I appreciate more of what I have now yeah. for going through that, that journey. So, Well, thanks yeah. for sharing that. That's awesome. I, and I appreciate that. We're, we're all, a lot of entrepreneurs, we're all running from things. Yeah, and when we use entrepreneurship as a distraction to not deal with the shit we got to deal with, and what I'm trying to transition to is uh, accepting who I am, loving who I am, and treating 
myself. You know, when, when you treat people bad, that's just a reflection of the way you feel about yourself. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, when you, once you realize that you, you got two options, <laughs> either bury it or do something about it. And so I'm, I'm working through that right now. If you see a lot of a lot of people who who do extraordinary things are flawed characters, you know whatever however you define the word flawed, right? And and I was yeah. reading uh, Tim Grover's book Winning, you know, and he was talking about um, when he used to coach Michael Jordan and uh, Kobe Bryant, and classic classically, you know, some of the stuff they achieved, both of them and others, amazing stuff, but they weren't the greatest people to be around. You know, their their no. focus on drive, <laughs> great book to read by the way, but their yeah. focus and drive was relentless on the outcome, and I. I admire that actually, because I think, you know, sometimes it's people who come from those sort of experiences that can inspire others. Yeah, of course. Do others as well. So yeah, cool. Well, let's, let's get into, um, I want to talk about the campaigns. I mean, what is it? Something like 1407 election victories. And we talked about the three presidential, let's talk about the, the big ones. Let's talk about these presidential elections, what goes on and how do you, how do you win? How do you win something like that? What do you have to do? And, and how do you, how do you make that happen? I'm going to give you a little story on it, and then I'm going to round back, and then we can, I can answer the question. Sure. Um, I think the reason I, um, I don't, I'm not sure I, you didn't, your intro may play before that. I just don't know, but I have this book that just came out and I'm not, this isn't like trying to insert the book. I, I, it's got to have context to my answer. The book is called the undefeated marketing system, how to grow your business and build your audience using the secret formula that elects presidents. And the reason I tell you that is to answer this question, because what I, in 2004, I was working for George W. Bush's reelection campaign. He's running against John Kerry. And we utilized for the first time ever in that presidential campaign, a formula to win the presidential campaign. And it worked. And, and I walked through the, in my book, I talk about this historical campaign in 2004 and then how it, every single political camp, political camp, presidential campaign used it going forward. Barack Obama used this formula to win election in 2008 and re-election in 2012. Donald Trump used it in 2016 to win and, and Joe Biden used it in 2020 to win. And so it really all starts back from, from 2004. And it was the ability for the first time ever for, for presidential campaigns, political campaigns to use sort of um, massive amounts of, of real consumer data to build models on voters to figure out what they cared about so that we could run our marketing campaigns only on what they cared about, not on the things that they didn't care about. So if we found out that they were only concerned about environmental issues, then they were never going to get an ad on us from us about tax issues. They were going to get environmental issues, right? And I walk through in the book a ton of stories on how it actually works on each political campaign from president to senator to governor to all these pres uh, all these campaigns we've worked on but in the end there's this five-step system that every political campaign pretty much uses in the united states to win the only difference is uh I, my i'm running this five-step system to win the political campaign let's say for a presidential campaign and my opponent is also utilizing the same five-step system so when you talk about win or die when we talk about you know mm. the you know sort of the uh, the comparisons with private equity, it's a, it is like, I'm using the system, they're using the system, my opponent's using the system. So all it does is create massive amounts of innovation. And it's whoever out innovates using the system wins the election. In marketing in the corporate world, 
what we realized was we no one no corporate entity was utilizing this system. So we started inserting it into the clients we worked with and we started growing every one of their bottom lines. Every company that has followed our systematic approach has grown their bottom line, every single one. And then we started seeing big Fortune 200 companies utilizing a portion of this and that's why they're growing like crazy and there's so many there's so much of a difference between the haves and the have-nots in the business world today uh, because the Fortune 200 companies are following a data system, a data back systematic approach to their marketing, and 99.9% of every other business in this world is not. And okay. the marketing, the marketing world is rigged. It's rigged for almost every single business out there except the big, big Fortune 200 companies. And happy to go through that with you. Now I want to go. But, I want to go deep into. I, I had my this mission in, my in life is to wake <laughs> up business owners whether ever I, they never hear from me again or whether they consume all my free content or whether they work, whatever, I don't care. But it is to educate and wake them up that they are there, there is a scam being run against them right now and it's the marketing world. And my job is to show you that no matter what changes in the world, no matter what happens with the technology and the data and the logarithms, you can always win. Because the clients that we work with, and I walk through all the case studies in the book, they all win. They all grow their bottom line. They all grow their businesses because no matter what disruption happens, they're prepared and they're on the front end of it. So I'd like to give you a story of what I mean by that. Yeah. I also want to go into it because again, people listening to this and now yeah. you've, you know, after 350 odd speeches, you've, you've sold that so well, Philip. That <laughs> well, I never taught in the 350. I'm talking politics. I never talk about this. So I'm really passionate. No, but this it. is, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a number of different things going on here. Yeah. I want to understand the five, the five parts to this, right? Yeah. You talked about it from a corporate perspective, but I've also got questions around, you know, the Cambridge Analytica thing came up a few years oh, back and that the, was big. The biggest, the biggest uh, false story that's ever existed. Sure. I'll talk about it. But, you know, it's more, it's more to do with also the onset of how the various platforms where you can advertise now have yeah. changed. Yeah. So there's totally. so many ways we can go, and I'm conscious. Well, we're gonna let me let me talk about this disrupt these two stories on disruption, and then we'll move into wherever you want to go because I want the audience to understand what's rigged against them right now. Yeah, let's do it. So we let, we work. Uh, I'll tell you two stories. One's a British company. So yep. this guy just reached out to us a couple months ago, and he said, uh, "I just got bought off by a private equity firm. I sell uh, baby products on Amazon, and he built it's high end stuff." And he built it into about a $10 million a year business all on Amazon. He sold to private equity. He has an earnout. You know what that is. And so he's like, okay, well, about a month after he signs the deal and the earnout starts, uh, some of his cheaper knockoff competitors decide to start a one-star review campaign against him. And they just, and it's a bunch of them. And what happens, and this actually happened to the book reviews in my book, because people don't like my politics, but you, when you put a review, you can now vote, is it helpful or do you report it? And so all of these knockoff competitors started upvoting the helpfuls on all the one-star reviews on his site. His, his sales went from $800,000 a month to $80,000 a month overnight. And he contacted uh, Amazon. He got somebody in India and they said, sorry, nothing we can do. And that is happening all the time. And, you know, if you don't understand, like people trying to sell products on Amazon, I'm like, what is your strategy to get off Amazon? Doesn't mean you abandon Amazon, but get, get your customers into your own network and you own that data. And that's, you know, uh, something that we, we talk a lot about. I talk a lot of book and we talk about that. The second story is even crazier. We, we work with a, 
uh, private security firm. So uh, background check company. So like, you know, the fast food industry has so much labor force that they need a lot of background checks, right? So this is one of those kind of companies or one of the top two or three in, in, in a, maybe in the world, but I know in America. And they came to us and they said, hey, we just got rid of this horrible marketing agency. We want to follow this five-step formula. Please help us. And we said, sure. But before we do, let's audit and see what's going on with your company. Well, they were spending about $10,000 a month on Google keywords. Um, uh, and Google had changed the rules on on their keyword ad campaign three years before to the and this company had no idea and their marketing agency had no idea the rules had changed they had been bidding against their own keywords for three years spending ten thousand dollars a month up uh having to bid against themselves every single month on their own keywords wasting between five and ten thousand dollars a month for three years this happens all the time uh, I'd tell you, I'll give you a couple stats and then I'm, I'll jump into everything, but I got to prove this point because it's so real right now. Yeah. Yeah. Nick. I'm um, with you. Forbes says we are seeing up to 10,000 ads a day online and offline. If you're selling t-shirts, you're not competing against other t-shirts, your t-shirt companies, you're competing against coffee mug companies, against hair care product companies, against microphone companies, against shoe company. You're competing against 10,000 other companies. And if you think that your stuff is so incredible that it's going to break through the clutter, you're insane. That's not how it works. Facebook, because of iOS's updates recently, has tanked as an ad platform. You've probably seen it. Other people have seen it. It's a I've horrible seen it place. Huh? What's <laughs> I've, that? Seen it with, I've seen it with my own ads for some of my businesses. Exactly. So oh, do yeah. you know how many people go, oh, I don't know, we're just still spending the money. Well, what happened if, if I could tell you, because I can, that your customers aren't on Facebook anymore to buy things. They're over on Pinterest, they're over on Instagram, or they're buying it through direct mail or through email campaigns. How much money are you wasting every month? If I could tell you and pinpoint exactly where you need to spend your money, because I know where your customers are, because we have the data to do that. And so my thing is this, over and over and over again, the, the big tech companies, they're, the big tech companies are like a casino. They're always going to win. They're always going to get your money. And you may have, as in your business, you may have a hot hand every once in a while, and you may win a few hands at the casino table, right? At the roulette table, or sorry, at the blackjack table, Right but you are going to lose more often than you win because the tech companies will change the logarithms. They'll change the rules. They won't inform you or they will inform you, but it'll be in an email and it'll be buried in a 27 page email. Like, and when you talk about this, is the last thing I'll say about it. When you talk about Uber, Uber is not a ride sharing company or a food delivery company. They are a data company that has ride sharing and food delivery. When you talk about Facebook, they're not a social media platform. They're a data company that has social media. When you talk about Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola is not a soft drink company or a water bottle, water, water bottle company. They are a data company that also has soft drink and water that they sell. If you do not understand that you are a data company, number one, and your product and service is number two, you will lose every time. And so what I'm out there in the book and what I teach is how do you change the game that you can win no matter how much they try to change the game. So I'll share with you a very, very quick story just to build on that. So we sold, the last company I was involved in, the last big exit for private equity was a business we sold to Blackstone for 2.4 billion in 2017. Yeah, hey, I'm, I'm unfamiliar. Blackstone, is that, is that, are they big? I'm not, big uh, biggest private equity firm in the world, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, know. You know, for everyone listening, you know, everyone listening who doesn't know, but even so they're massive, right? You know, huge. Yeah. But what's interesting about that, right, is, and I'll, I'll keep this brief, 
as we built up to the exit, to the sale, so the pre-sales planning, exit readiness, around six months before the actual close, we were selling this business as an education technology business. And within the last eight weeks, we changed everything. This is just before we went to market mm. and we turned it into a data business because we had so much data in, yeah. in certain areas. That's all people want anyway. And we increased the multiple yeah. around about five points. We sold it for 14X, but it was a bit, <laughs> it broke every record. Everyone was like, wow, how the hell did that happen? And all we did was just change the positioning. We had, the, we had it, but we, we weren't telling the story. Right. So I totally get where you're coming from here. And I talk about this a lot, but I'm really interested to know, back to my original question about how do you win three presidential campaigns, yeah. particularly, I'm, I'm, I, you know, the point that you said about everyone's doing the same five things, right? And so I want to know what the five things are now. Well, I think let's we're let's walk that. through the five things. And then why let's get into start, that. Why don't I start how it works in politics, but I'll, I'll ping and pong back in how it works in corporate America. Yeah, please do. Great. So step one, uh, let, me, let me just say, how, this is how every political campaign has ever started for me. Uh, the candidate uh, calls me in and says, you know, I, I want to run for office. And I say, great. What do you believe in? What, what are the issues you want to run on? And they go, oh, I want to run on 25 different policy ideas. And I go, oh, God, oh, no. Nobody <laughs> wants to hear tw- your, your opinions on 25 different policy positions. Like nobody, you know, people, we're busy. We've got families, we're running businesses. We got kids, we're running around like crazy. Like, nobody wants to hear that. They only care about one or two things, your voters, right? So what I want to do is I want to take those 25 policy positions and I want to run uh, data surveys on them and understand what the voters care about within those 25 issues. And so if I can figure out what they care about the most, if I can take those 25 policy issues and test those and and do surveys and polling and data mining and matching and find out that there are only two issues that will elect that candidate. To like in the in the voters care about those two issues to such a degree that they would vote for an unknown or even an unsavory candidate, right? If they just knew that they cared about those two issues, wouldn't that be important? And why that's important is that you don't want to talk about the 23 other things that the voters don't really care about. Why that'd be a complete waste of time, right? So I developed a partnership with the largest data collection analytics and AI company in America. And in our database, we have 200 million plus American consumers, 550 million connected devices. We're tracking 10 billion online purchasing decisions every day and a trillion searches. And so I can literally tell you everything you ever want to know about any customer base or voter base that has ever existed. I can tell you. I'm a data geek as well, Philip. So like I was getting like almost goosebumps when you said all that. Uh, I'm glad that was all you got. Um, Before we go deeper though, again, this may be an ignorant question because I'm the UK guy or the Australian guy, but you know, in terms of the initial targeting to say, who is my constituent, who is my audience? Is that based on political orientation or is that based on something else before you then go out to find out what actually matters to them? It could. I mean, I think that's a starting point right? What parties do they belong to or whatever? But ultimately, you've got to figure out what is going to get you to 50% plus one to win the race. Remember, in our elections, you just have to win 50% plus one. You can piss off 49.9% of the marketplace. It doesn't matter, right? Yeah, got it. Got so it. You got to figure so, out so you're, looking for, you're looking for scale here. You're looking you're for trying scale. To look for the, yeah. What's the coalition that gets me to 50 plus one? Mm, okay. And so, you know, that, that's how we look at it. And in the, in the corporate world, it, you know, we love to tell our founder story. Oh, we love to tell it, everybody. Hey, here's my story. I founded my company. Like, 
But what if you knew that your customers didn't really care about your founder story or they only cared about 20% of it? Wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't that change the way you market your business? Oh, gotcha. Right. Now, now you can, right? I can literally tell you your customers. I can tell you their top three values in life. I can tell you the social media platforms they go on a chronological order. I can tell you the magazines they read specifically. I can tell you the TV shows they're streaming specifically. I can tell you everything you ever wanted to know about your customer base. That exists. That exists. There are ways to do it that you don't have to pay the kind of you know, fees that we have, but that exists. And so it's the same thing in politics. Wouldn't you want to know what the voters think about? So I love the politicians, Nick, but I'm obsessed with the voter. I want, I'm, I, I'm obsessed with what the voter thinks. And the reason I tell you all this is because we lack empathy in our society right now. Everything, everybody's shouting about what they want to talk about. People are throwing their phones up in their faces and saying, but I'm a product and let me tell you how an expert I am and all this stuff. And it's all bullshit because no one gives a shit about that unless you're tapping into what they care about. And so I'm obsessed with sort of the empathetic marketing that lacks so much in today's world. And so for us, everything comes down to data, 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 first step. Before you go spend a bunch of money on ads, before you build your brand, before you spend uh, money trying to figure, you know, like, oh my God, let's go run an ad campaign. Don't do that. It's the stupidest thing you can do. Do a deep dive into understanding who your customers are. There are ways that you can hire data companies to do it, like what we do. But I walk through in my book a ton of ways that companies can do it without hiring anybody. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and so that's one way. So that's step one. Step two. When you create a business, right, do you just go out and run a bunch of tactics in that business or do you build a business plan and then run, run your tactics through the strategy of the business plan? <laughs> Right. I, start with the, I start with the vision of what I want to create and, right. and, and, you know, and ultimately and build from there and then build back from that. And then it is a strategy, right? And then, then the tactics come, you know, to, to support the strategy, right? Right. So 99, nine, political markers don't do this or candidates don't do this. I'll tell you how it works in the political world, but for right. business owners, they go out, 99% of them run out and just run a bunch of tactics and their marketing. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you running a bunch of Facebook ads? What if your customers aren't buying things on Facebook? Why are you doing that? And so what we do in step two with a politician is we say, all right, here's what the voters think. Here's your vision. Let's marry those things together now. Where we have alignment, let's build that plan on alignment. Not on what I want to talk about as the politician or the business owner, but what my voters and customers think and what I also believe. Where do we have alignment? That's now the vision of the, of the political campaign. And so many business owners on the business, I get this wrong because they just run out and tell everybody what they think people want to hear. And then they have a little right. success when they could have a lot of success if they just knew more and what their customers think. So step two is you've got to build sort of the fundamental vision alignment strategic plan that matches the data you found with your voters or customers and the vision of that politician or that, that business owner. Make sense? Makes a lot of sense. All right. So step yeah, three. I love, I love the fact it's forensic and granular as well here. Yeah. So step three. Step three is now you do your branding. Now I get, this is where we, business owners get screwed up and turned around. What, what do you mean? We got to do the branding first. So we're having my marketing firm told me we got to do the vision statement and we got to put the logo together. And I'm like, oh my God, like, why would you ever spend a dollar and send people to your website or your brand or your company if it didn't meet where they were? If it didn't meet their expectations, why would you do that? Shouldn't you know what the customer thinks, or in this case, the politician or the, the voters, 
So with the politician, we're building a brand. Let's say it's just a website, the videos, the content, the policies, all the things that go into that website. We're only focusing on what? Two things. The two things we found in the data that the, that the, there's alignment between the politician and the voter. That's it. That's all we're doing, right? The, the entire brand is based on that because when we send a, when we run ads and we send a voter to that website and they go, I want to learn more about John Smith. And they go over there and they go, oh my God, I care about one of those issues a lot. I want to know more about him. I want to vote for him. I want to give him money. I want to volunteer for him. Like that's how you build it. It's the same thing in the business world. It's people, why would I spend a dollar of a business owner's money if I knew the brand didn't meet what the customer wanted? And I walked through this story in this book. There's this great pest control company that, that did this. And, and I screwed up and I agreed to work with them by doing just a couple of my steps and not the full five steps. And we sent... 300 and something leads to their website. And they said, we'll handle the website. You don't worry about us. And I said, okay. And I just did it anyway. Cause I like the guys. And I just said, you know, I'm a, I, I like them. They don't, they need, they don't have the money. I'm going to help them. Dumbest thing I've ever done. The, the website, they were, these were two 300 pound dudes and I love them, but they were, they were two 300 pound dudes leaning up against a car saying, hire us to be your pest control company. What, mom in middle America or anywhere is going to look at that ad and say, I want those two guys in my house. They were in t-shirts. They weren't in uniforms. They looked sloppy. By the way, the website was like all words, no visuals. It was all content. Um, I, CompuWare has a stat out right now that says if, if a customer has one bad experience on your website, 88% chance they'll never come back again. 88%. I mean, it's almost certainty that if you screw up your brand, you'll never get that person back to your website. We, so we used to say, I mean, back in my days, I mean, my, yeah. I started off in branding, right? Years ago, Coca-Cola yeah. and those sort of companies. We used to say a brand is a promise of consistency. Yes. So again, if you've got a message that's going out there or you're talking to an audience and their values are misaligned with what you're presenting visually or whatever, it doesn't matter if the website can be any type of media that they then um, interact with, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get them. That's right. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a conflict straight away. So well, people throw up websites and then start running ads and go, I can't figure out why this isn't working. And I'm like, first of all, you don't have any idea what your customers really want. Why are they buying outside of your product? Wouldn't that be interesting to know? I can tell you. What if you knew that they looked at price instead of brand? Or what if you knew they looked at quality instead of price? Or what if you knew that friction to transaction, how quick and easy you make it was their number one choice and why they bought products and services? I can tell you all that. That exists out there. But wouldn't you want to know that? Wouldn't your, shouldn't your brand be, if it's an e-commerce site, shouldn't it be two clicks and you're done if they value friction to transaction? Like, yes, like you've got to know these things, right? It's common so sense brand, when you say it though, right? But again, is it, when, you, when you were out there, let's just to flip to the corporate piece and, and business right. piece. Is it an awareness thing then? Are people just are people are so in the minutia. You know, I always say that sort of thirty thousand foot view versus being right in the dirt. Right. Are they just not giving themselves the space to think logically? Because when you when you say it like that, of course, if we can get information like that, why would you not do it any other way? I think the rules and the world has changed so rapidly and so fast. You know, twenty years ago, you could run a TV ad, a radio ad, and a mail piece and be done, and it doesn't work like that now. And the point is where are the eyeballs go and where are the conversions happening. And people don't even think about it. They just think, well, everybody's on Facebook. Let me go to Facebook. Well, what if you knew that people aren't buying things on Facebook? I keep going back to this because that's what it is right now. It's a great branding platform, 
but it is not a very good conversion platform. What and about taking looking, people off the platform? Do you, do you still recommend, I mean, I'm just talking about Facebook for a second, yeah, like yeah. getting getting people into something else that then gets data. Right. I mean, that, that, that is that still a strategy you propose? My thing is I, I try to push everything we do into collecting your own data. Yeah. So you take and it off the platforms. Yeah. Take it off the platform. Doesn't mean you, you can't, you're always going to be on the platforms, but what's your percentage? Is it hundred percent like the, the guy in the UK that was, uh, had baby toys, uh, or is it 50% or is it 30% or is it 25? What is it? And then go build it. Right. Yeah. For us, step four, uh, once you've, figured out what your voters or customers want, once you've built that strategic plan with targeting and budgets and timelines and outcomes and alignment. And then once you've built the brand before you send them to the brand, you test. Now, everybody tests. I'm not saying you don't run test ads. Uh, I'm not saying that that's any different than what a lot of other marketers do. But the problem is this. A lot of marketers say, we have eight concepts we want to test, but they're all out of thin air. I'm only going to test the best eight messages I found in the data. Wouldn't that be important to test? Because you know that all eight will work, but maybe one or two of them will work more than any others. For example, in the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump, in this four-step process, got to the testing phase, and they would test one message 162 ways. Really? One message. They would have a woman in the ad, a man in the ad, a red background, a green background, different font sizes, fonts in the right corner, the left corner. They literally would run one test message 162 ways. And inevitably, Nick, they would find one, excuse me, they'd find eight or nine that blew through the roof and they had no idea why. Before we go <laughs> but, on, before yeah. we go on, because I like going deep into these things, particularly when it piques my interest, but how do you extrapolate that message before you get to the hundred and whatever is tests yeah. of it? You know, how yeah. do you get to that message? How do you get that? You know, you already know what the, the, the voters in that instant are going to think. You know that message is going to work. You just don't know what part of that message will work Got best. It. So you've taken the two, as we go, I'm just going back to the things. You're taking the two or thing, two things that say that it matters the most. And then you test them many different ways. You optimize those two messages. You don't just come up with eight messages out of thin air and you say, I don't know, let's just test. Uh, Donald Trump's a great, you know, would be a great leader. Like that doesn't, like that's all made up. Right. And so 162. Now, most businesses are never going to do 162 different versus one ad. I get that. This is a billion dollar campaign. But that's the that is what the sophistication is going on right now with Fortune 200 companies. When we do work for them, this is exactly what they're doing. And so ultimately, let's say you find two or three of your test ads blow through the roof of through all the you know risk elimination data work that you're doing. You go to step five, which is now you're ready to launch the, mar the marketing campaign because you've eliminated your risk every step of the way. And you figured out what messages are going to convert at the highest rate before you go spend a bunch of money. And when you're ready to send those people back to your website, your website's on point and ready to be utilized and ready to be converted to the customer. And you've eliminated the risk every step of the way. I can't survive in politics if I'm not eliminating the risk of the politician every single step and also out innovating my competition. That's the difference that makes the difference for us. How do you innovate within the five steps? So you, the point beforehand, you said lots of people, everyone is now using those five right. steps. How yeah. do you do that? So uh, you want me to give you an example? Mm, I got quick. lots of stuff. I'm a story. I know you do. I know. I don't think I'm going to ever catch you out on a question, by the way, which is not my intention. I'm just dead curious about so the way So we were you do working it. on a congressional race in 2020. Um, and, uh, it was out of Texas and it was one of the top 
uh, our candidate, he was, his name is Roger Williams. Um, he was, a, he's a congressman and he was literally targeted by the Democrats as like the, one of the top 10 congressmen to take out in the election. So the Democrat candidate, uh, Julie Oliver. So her campaign, they're running the five steps. We're running the five steps. The pandemic hits. So what did we do? We said, let's go collect some data. Let's figure out what's really moving these voters right now. And what we found out, obviously, is that healthcare and we're big issues. This is like in June of 2020. Right. But what we found by surveying all these voters was that one of the biggest concerns was pre-existing conditions, because at that time in the pandemic, pre-existing conditions we thought may lead to death for a lot of people. So everybody that had a, people were like, I have family members with pre-existing conditions. I have a pre-existing, whatever it is. People were concerned about pre-existing conditions. And we knew that if that was the top issue in the race, we knew that Julie Oliver, our opponent, was going to start attacking Roger on pre-existing conditions. Like he's not going to look out for pre-existing conditions. He's not going to, like we knew we were going to be attacked on it, right? But by following the data, putting a plan in place, rebranding his brand around pre-existing conditions is one of those issues. And then we went out and tested some ads and we figured out which one would work the best. And then we launched the campaign. And so we launched the campaign in August of 2020. And it was this Roger on camera talking about how he's a cancer survivor with pre-existing conditions. About a month later, Julie Oliver starts running attack ads on pre-existing conditions. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we oh. out innovated. Okay. Well, you also and, you also pace was important there as well. Like, there's there's a bit like obviously right. the message is important. But you got out there first, right? Yeah, I got out there first. I out innovated. So when she ran those ads, they fell completely flat. Which had we not run the campaign we had, we, they would have hit hard and they probably would have beaten us. Roger ended up winning the race, I think, by double digits, and he ended up being of all the targeted people in Congress. We have 435 Congress people in, in the United States of all the top targeted uh, races where they thought they could take out incumbents, right? Like Roger Williams, we won by the highest margin of any race in the country. And that's because we followed the five steps, but we out innovated the other campaign that was also following the five steps. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, well there's, a, there's a bit where you've got to iterate on the fly. You know, you're using the word innovate, but, the, but you know, when I, again, I don't know any of this stuff. Like I haven't lived in the US that much. I've you know, been a bit of time there, but but there seems to be a lot of jostling and backwards and forwards. And there, there seems like this changes, right? There has to be this flexibility within it because it's almost like a prize fight, right? You've got two fighters going at it and there's a message that comes that you didn't expect. And then, you know, is that is that real or is it? Is it totally it, real. So, so I can see now that, you know, you have to be prepared all the way through, particularly if yeah. you're you're going after similar types of things. I mean, I want I want to ask you another just a couple of final questions because I'm appreciative of your time. Because I asked it beforehand and you mentioned it, and the Cambridge Analytica thing is just something I'm curious about. What was that? Because okay, that was the so Cambridge Analytica packet. walked into my office in Washington D.C. three different times and tried to sell me and pitch me. Oof. And every single time when they walked out, I looked at my partners and my team and we all laughed and said, they're a bunch of frauds, fraudsters. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. And we will never use them because they are complete idiots and they don't know what they're talking about. So this Netflix documentary is complete lie. I, I lived it. Uh, one of my best friends worked for Cambridge Analytica and got caught up in all the lawsuits. And the one thing he said to me is, they lied about everything. 
they didn't know what they were doing. Face the fact that they they think they infiltrated Facebook. It's I mean everybody, every data company in the world was doing what they were doing. They were just stupid about it. They they weren't innovative. They weren't unique. They weren't different. They were idiots. What was interesting to me about but, it? But the right. media right. found a story, Nick. And they had to tell a story. And then Netflix said, what a cool story. Let's make a documentary out of it and make it crazy and make it so like a thriller. And it's going to get everybody talking about it. And that's what happened. I never saw the documentary. But, no, but you I know haven't either. To me, I had a feeling I won't about watch this. it because it's no, a I, I'm not that right. interested in, in the detail of it. But what I think was interesting, right, is and this is, this is just my personal opinion and or prejudice, right, is that people are going, oh, my God. Like, look, uh, Facebook, they all have our data, right? And this whole idea now that, you know, it's like, well, I'm not being funny, guys. Like, that's that's probably a decade old, right? You know, it's got- At least, <laughs> you at know? least a decade old, probably like 2009. Yeah, exactly. And, I'm and, reading and, the Facebook book. There's a book that just came out on Zuckerberg and this data thing, and it's so fascinating. And um, they were doing this in 2009. Yeah. It just, it's just it like button. that. The, the like button was the ability to capture data for the first time ever for them. Was it that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just the fact that things like that then hits, you know, the masses and then it causes. Well, this you know, is why the marketing game is rigged because you people are sitting here 12 years later not realizing that <laughs> they, these things, right? It's just insane to me. So the final question for you. As we've talked a lot about, obviously, the, the political side, we've talked yeah. about some of the larger, you know, for, you know, Fortune 200, Fortune 500 companies, that sort of thing. As a smaller business, let's say you're a seven-figure, eight-figure business, right? That's small to medium size. Is there anything around the five principles that's different? Obviously, access to maybe the resources to go and spend a lot on yeah. these things, that's different. But you know, I haven't looked at the book in detail, but is there anything that comes to mind where you say, actually, yeah, there are some differences of how you would apply the five principles or, you know what, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I, I actually had this epiphany about three years ago that the only people that we're not the only people like this is when I was like, oh, my God, everything's rigged because the only people that can afford to win the game of marketing right now to, to have a higher, you know, to grow their business is the Fortune 200 companies. When they come to us to use our data systems, they're spending two, three hundred thousand uh, dollars on one data report. Right. Yeah. Uh, because they're gonna, they're like, ah, let's look at twenty to twenty-two year old men making thirty-five thousand dollars to seventy thousand. Like they can look at so many different segments, and that costs a lot of money. For me personally, I went to our data partner, and I said, the small businesses need to understand this. They need they need the same data, like Amazon, um, Disney, Hershey's, TurboTax, uh, a bunch of other companies all use this data that we we have access to. And um, we there's so many people that need it other than the big the big dogs, and they said, okay, well then you pay us a licensing fee and you can charge what you want for it. And so we paid a high six figure every two year licensing agreement with them, and I bet my entire company on it. I I've mortgaged everything because I believe in understanding customers so much, and now we offer it at a I mean a fraction of what they're paying it. Uh, and we do it for uh, small businesses uh, in that seven, six, seven to eight figure range. Right. And after that, you're off to the races. You can do this on your own or you can have our marketing agency to follow it with you. But we've now done 397 data reports for small businesses in the last three years. 
And I've never had a, a never, not one time have I had one business owner not jaw drop to the ground and go, how did I not realize this after all these years? This is the most mind blowing. I'm not selling. I'm just saying like, you got to understand your customer. When you finally understand your customer, you go, oh my God, how did I not understand my customer? And that's the whole key to everything. Yeah. And then, and, and just to draw a line under that, the granularity of that, you know, of what, what is accessible to us now as yeah. business owners is so much more. And as you said beforehand, the pace of that change has been incredible. So so if this conversation raises awareness for that, then, you know, That's right. I've, I've done my job. You've done your job today. <laughs> and if you <laughs> want to do a part two and we'll keep diving into this, I'm always up for it. I, I love this stuff. I love this stuff. It's been a big part of the um, the businesses that I've been involved in the private equity game too and the scale-ups. So I, I fundamentally agree with it. I, I think even my, even though I'm probably on one end of the spectrum, which is a bit more sort of the sharper ends, I don't think my understanding is as granular as some of the stuff we've covered today. So sure. super cool. So the undefeated marketing system is the book. Yeah. So buy the book. There we go. Um, and your, uh, just to be correct here, your your business that that um, obviously um, provides this this data capability and other marketing. Yeah, I mean the easiest way, I guess, for me is if you want, we we do a free assessment for businesses that want to look at their data and they want to understand how we would look at their data. And it's a thirty minute to forty five minute call with my team for free. You go to philipstutz.com slash insights. Uh, by the way, that is just for American businesses. Unfortunately, the EU has a lot of restrictions on data So uh, for us. so But if you're an American company, that, that exists. We, you can also subscribe to my blog. I do not pitch anything. I like writing about data and marketing. That's at philipstutz.com. And then I have a podcast, the Undefeated Marketing Podcast. So you get free resources with the podcast, the blog, and the book. I mean, the book's you know, eight bucks. Um, and then, every, you know, if you want to explore more on the data side, we're always uh, open to having that conversation. Awesome, man. Well, I'll make sure we link all of that into the show notes. Thank uh, you. And yeah, let's do, let's do a, we just definitely do a phase two on this. This has been good fun. So, um, Philip, pleasure, mate. I mean, we yeah, could go on in a million, a million angles, you. a million yeah. angles, but you know, that was covered well. So thank keep, you keep so doing much. Great work, man. I appreciate you. No worries. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook, or to find out how you can get get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.